I think it's one of the things I admire most about her because I think when she was diagnosed, she she knew how bad diagnosis was. Of course, she was still going to fight it as long as she could. But I, I think it must have been very hard for her to not sort of try to implore me to just spend all the time that I could with her because she knew that it. she wanted quality, not quantity of time with me. And she knew that whatever hours I, I left her for to go run at practice or to go do a cross-country race or a track race was um, was really making my life better in, in the long run. I think she was trying to set me up for preparing for life without her in a way and also still pursuing the things that um, that I cared about a lot. Welcome to the Feel Good Running Podcast, where our goal is to keep you motivated, inspired, and energized. As a runner, or perhaps you are looking for the right motivation to become one, you've definitely found the right place. We share inspirational stories from real runners, motivating running-related information, and much more to help you feel good about your running. And now your host and a longtime feel-good runner himself, Jim Lynch. Hello, runners, and welcome to episode number 10. Yes, number 10, double digits. My name is Jim Lynch, your host, and this is my podcast, Feel Good Running. It's for the everyday runner. So if you're brand new and this is your first episode, welcome. I really appreciate you checking us out. And if you're a longtime listener, long time would be as many of the podcast episodes that you've listened to so far. Thank you for returning. As I always say, there are a lot of good running podcasts out there. And if you're listening, first time or returned listener, you chose mine and I'm humbled and I thank you. As a matter of fact, we hit a milestone since the last episode. We now have over a thousand downloads. That's right. A thousand downloads for the show. When I started this back, well, I actually started it way back, uh, but didn't get it launched until December of last year. I would have been happy with just getting 20 downloads and now we're over a thousand. So thank you. Appreciate it. But we have a very special show for you today. I came across this young lady as I was on the internet checking out some YouTube videos and found this TED Talk. And the title of it was Run To, Not From. So as I watched it, I got so emotionally entrenched into this. I was glued to my screen and I watched the entire thing actually two or three times. And I knew at that point I needed to get her on Feel Good Running as a guest. Now, just imagine you're born in China and at 11 months old, you're left on a street corner by your parents in hopes that you will have a better life. And now fast forward to next month, May of 2019, and you're graduating from Harvard. In this young lady's 21 years, she has experienced happiness, loss, joy, pain, love, reflection, and a tremendous amount of life. And she's very passionate about running. As a matter of fact, she's been the captain of the Harvard College Running Club. You're going to have a chance to get to know this young lady later on in the show. We had a wonderful, wonderful conversation. So be sure you check that out. It's coming up in a little bit. All right. So uh, just one piece of business that I want to talk about. I got something brand new on my website. It is an opportunity for you to leave a voice message. What was that, Jim? A voice message? Yeah, you can leave a voice message. And you'll have three minutes to record what you'd like. You can share your story on how you got into running. 
You can tell us about a favorite run that you have, share a running accomplishment that you're very proud of, whatever you'd like. And we may play it on one of our episodes. So you can do this at feelgoodrunning.com. It's on the main page, go to the bottom and there'll be a place that you can click and then you'll have a chance to record your message. It's We get it in an MP3 file here and then I'll sort through them and select a few and share them with our listeners by playing them on a future episode. And who knows, may even have you on as a guest on Feel Good Running. Now, one other thing on each of the pages on my website, feelgoodrunning.com, there is also a tab on the side that you can click on. It says, leave a voice message, and that will do the same thing. So there's plenty of opportunity, but I think it's better than going in and typing your story or whatever you'd like to do. You can just go on, record it, and we're all good to go. So that's my newest feature on the Feel Good Running website. Please go in there and uh, and do it. Do it now. I want to hear your stories. Whatever you got going on in the running world, I really want to hear them. And I'm sure our listeners will love hearing them too, because what you accomplish motivates and inspires others. All right, moving on. I really don't have a specific topic that I want to talk about today, but there are a few things that I want to talk about. So uh, the first thing is we were at the Los Angeles Marathon Expo to promote the 2019 Maui Marathon. I'm the co-race director of the Maui Marathon here on the island of Maui. And by the way, the date is October 13th this year. So if you want to come to Maui, we have a marathon, a half marathon, a full marathon relay, a 10K and a 5K event all held on October 13th. Love to have you out here. But we were promoting our event at the LA Marathon Expo. We had a booth there and had a chance to talk to several people. And I certainly appreciate all of those conversations. We had several folks that had questions about our race and also just questions about Maui in general. And I really enjoyed talking to everybody. So thank you for stopping by if you did. And on May 3rd and 4th, if you happen to be in Spokane, Washington, and are going to be running the Bloomsday Run, well, we're going to be at that expo on the 3rd and 4th of May. We'll be promoting the Maui Marathon, answering all your questions, selling some leftover merchandise from the 2018 Marathon. I'd really like to say hi to you. So stop by our booth at the Bloomsday Run Expo on the 3rd and 4th of May up in Spokane, Washington. All right. If you listened to the last episode, episode number nine with Tasha Church, we had out here on Maui our First female running safety class, which was sponsored by Valley Isle Roadrunners. We had 18 ladies that went through two and a half hours with Tasha learning uh, techniques and tips for self-defense if they're out there running. The class was very successful, some real good feedback. And these ladies now can go out and run and at least have some sort of skill and technique behind them in the event that some unfortunate or uncomfortable situation would happen. Now, I am extremely upset because another female runner was found murdered, kidnapped and raped. This was in New Jersey. Her name is Caroline Cano. She was found floating in the lake, just going out for a run. And this 33-year-old idiot took her life. And I am so sad about hearing these stories. I'm so fed up and tired of it. Ladies, please, please, 
please take some self-defense. Be smart out there. These stories absolutely suck. All right. I'm sorry to go off on that, but this is this is ridiculous. We're talking about this last few episodes and now it happens again. It's so friggin' sad. I'm telling you, please be safe. Do something. Take Tasha's online course. Go to a local wherever that, that teaches self-defense. Be smart. Be smart out there. Come on. I'm tired of these stories. They're senseless and, you know, you, you got to take preventative measures. You just have to. So, Please take it upon yourself. Do not become a victim out there. Do the right thing. Take some time and invest in your safety. It's your life. I know it sucks. I know it sucks to have to worry about that. But invest in your safety. I got Tasha's link in the show notes for her class. Please, ladies, please just do something, all right? Runners care about your safety and do not want you to be a statistic, okay? All right, moving along, I like Netflix and I really like documentaries. I am a documentary person. I find them extremely interesting, especially the ones that are inspirational and motivational. Those I really, really like. And during one of our group runs recently, my friend Catalina, who, by the way, is an extremely positive person. She is, she's wonderful. So she said, Jim, you got to see this documentary on Netflix. It's called Roll With Me. She said, it is the most inspirational thing I've ever seen. And I was crying and you just got to watch it. Okay. All right, Catalina, I'll do that. Well, it was in the back of my head for a week or so. And I was home one night and turned on Netflix and decided to give it a shot well, as it started playing, I didn't know if I really wanted to watch it. I felt actually a little uncomfortable. Now, it's not because of Gabriel Cordell and the fact that he was paralyzed and what he was about to do. I think it was the people that he gathered up to go on this incredible journey that he was about to do. There was drugs and, and crime and gangs all part of these folks' lives. And I'm not really sure I felt comfortable and wanted to sit there for an hour and a half and and watch this. But I will tell you that as I started getting into it more and more and more, I felt exactly like Catalina. I was inspired and there were moments of tears. Can't lie on that one. But let me tell you a little bit about it. I'm not going to go in depth. I just want to tell you a little bit about it and recommend it to you. Gabriel Cordell, he was in a automobile accident. He was thrown from the car and he was uh, slammed against a telephone pole and became paralyzed from the waist down. And he was confined to a wheelchair. Uh, You know, he wanted to be an actor and it ended up where he just felt like he was a failure in life. He turned to drugs, got into drugs, and at some point he decided that he wanted to do something with his life. So in a absolutely unmodified wheelchair, he went from Santa Monica to New Jersey, coast to coast, over 3,000 miles in 100 days. And all they had was an RV with with this uh, group of people that he put together there was a uh, female that saw it and wanted to produce and uh, shoot the documentary. And she was a, a struggling producer also. And, 
it just is a, an amazing story. So I highly recommend you watch it. Now, it, it really has nothing at all to do with running, but anything inspirational like that makes your running much better. I would love to get him on the podcast, as a matter of fact. And I know it, I know it's not part of running, but I think this story is phenomenal. And uh, I'm going to try to get in touch with him. So we'll see where that goes. I think the guy, Gabriel, he's, he's, a, he's a, just a motivating guy. And I think, I think we can get him. So we'll see what happens. I'll work on that. All right. In the meantime, take an hour and a half or so and watch Roll With Me, the documentary. I guarantee it will certainly inspire you. All right. Finally, the last thing I want to talk about is the Boston Marathon. All of you out there that are going to be running it this year on the 15th, I want to wish you the best of luck. I hope you have a phenomenal weather day, not like last year, but a really good day to run the race. And I hope that all of your training and everything that you've done to prepare yourself for the Boston Marathon, all of it comes together, the stars align, and you have a phenomenal race. I wish that for everybody who's running it. And of course, if you're doing other races, other marathons, I wish the exact same for you. But of course, Boston is a Super Bowl of marathons. The majority of the runners have qualified at another marathon to be able to at least have the opportunity to register for the Boston Marathon. And I know there's a lot out there over 7,500 that didn't get in this year, but I know they're changing the times for 2020 and I hope you still have a shot to get into it. So good luck to everybody. Have a stellar race and I'll be thinking about you. You can bet on that. All right, let's move on with some motivational and inspirational news. Searching anywhere and everywhere. Here is this episode's Feel Good Running News. On November 7th, 2018, 20-year-old Caitlin Dolder was out with her friends at a nightclub and suddenly she saw him pointing his gun and it didn't register first, but soon she realized that this was really happening. That night, 12 people were killed in a mass shooting at the Borderline Bar and Grill in Thousand Oaks, California. Caitlin went to the Borderline Bar every Wednesday with her friends. She absolutely loves line dancing. When the shooting started, she was separated from her friends and ended up jumping out of a window to safety. Fortunately, all of her friends survived, but the events of that night hit her very hard, as it would for any of us. Caitlin is a runner and was already signed up for the 2019 Los Angeles Marathon. But after the shooting, there was a period of little sleep, no eating, and lack of motivation. But not long after, she started running again, and she realized that it would help her cope with the trauma and help her recover. She said, running is always a relaxer for me and a time where I get to be by myself and enjoy time outside. As she was training, she got the inspiration to dedicate the marathon not only to the victims of the shooting, but also the survivors. To show her dedication, she wrote each victim's name on a popsicle stick with borderline strong on the back. Every two miles of the marathon, she stopped and took a photo with the popsicle stick and the mile marker in the background. The last mile was dedicated to the survivors. She said, because as survivors, we had to live through it and are going to have to live with it 
for the rest of our lives. Caitlin said those that are still struggling should keep reaching out to people. Find something you love that will distract you and help you cope. Well, Caitlin, though you will never forget that unfortunate experience, you are taking the right steps to heal and are extremely inspiring to those that may be stuck and have not yet been able to move forward. By the way, Caitlin ran the Los Angeles Marathon in March in an excellent time of five hours, eight minutes, and 23 seconds. You rock, sister. The Samaritan's Marathon team runs the Boston Marathon in honor of loved ones lost to suicide while raising funds, hope, and awareness for suicide prevention. Their team started out with two runners in 2007 and now raises more than $150,000 each year. This year, the team consists of 13 runners. One of the team members is Michelle Moe Wheeler from Merrimack, New Hampshire. I would like to read to you her story that is in her words taken from her crowdfunding page. I did condense it a little bit. It goes like this. In the mid-90s, I sat on my living room floor listening to the same song repeatedly, convinced my family, my friends, and my toddler son were better off without me. I attempted to take my own life that night, saved only by a very soft, distant, yet persistent voice in my head that said, you have to keep fighting. Miraculously, some deep hidden part of me woke up and heard that voice. I picked up the phone, barely able to move, and called my own ambulance, and I am forever grateful that they made it to me in time. My memory thereafter is very fuzzy with medications, shock treatments, and numerous hospital stays. But that moment, sitting alone on my living room floor, will forever be stamped in the forefront of my mind. I never want anybody to be in that moment. One of the many important coping skills I have found and worked into my life is running. And I have said this before, and I will say it again. Running has saved my life. In 2015, I ran my first marathon to benefit the Samaritan Suicide Prevention Organization. I ran in honor of my friend's sister who took her life at a very young age. I also ran for her mother, who I befriended, who later also lost her life to suicide. I ran for them. I ran for their family. I ran for friends, family, strangers, myself, everyone affected by suicide. And yes, there are a lot of us. I am honored to find myself once again running for all of us affected by mental illness and suicide to raise awareness and funds to help those in need. It has taken me years to figure out how to not let my past haunt me and how to not allow my bipolar disorder to rule my world. There are times I still find myself in need of support, following a bit behind, requiring my village to join forces and carry me through. But knowing I am doing something that could help others find the help they need drives me to keep fighting and stay focused. Well, Mo ran the 2015 Boston Marathon in four hours and 35 minutes and has run several races since, including the 2016 North Carolina Ironman, which he completed in nine hours and 40 minutes and 56 seconds. It's amazing. There is a link to Mo's video and fundraising page in the show notes. Her goal is $10,000, and I believe she has about $7,700 in donations so far with about a week to go. And there's also a little bit about the Samaritans in there, too. Please go to it and check it out. Suicide is real, and suicide prevention hotlines and help is everywhere. As Mo promotes, it is okay to not be okay. 
and it's okay to seek help. Please, if you are feeling suicidal, seek help. You're very much worth it. Good luck in Boston, Mo, and good luck moving forward. And thank you for having the courage to tell your story to everyone and fighting for and bringing awareness to suicide prevention. And finally, for the second year in a row, no runners reach the end of the famous Barclays Marathon in Tennessee. This is a 100-mile, nearly impossible ultramarathon. There is a 60-hour time limit, and it is tagged as the world's toughest race. And it is set up for the runner to fail. Only 15 people in 33 years have finished. Hundreds apply each year for the 35 to 40 spots. Each year, the race officially starts when founder Gary Cantrell lights a cigarette. Silly. In my opinion, this is purely a novelty event designed for only a few that will most likely fail. No disrespect to those that apply and attempt it, but honestly, as a runner, I don't see the point to it. I have a friend that is very wrapped up following it each year because she has a friend that attempts it. Sure, it is an endurance event and people are attracted to that, but in my opinion, it is an event with an unattainable finish. So again, what's the point? It's not my idea of running and actually should not even be put into the category of marathons. Agree or disagree, that is purely my opinion. Apparently, there is a documentary on the Barkley Marathons. Well, though I love documentaries, I'll pass. And now it's time to welcome this episode's very special running guest. What fascinates me about doing a podcast is the incredible guest you have a chance to meet and learn a little about their life and hear their story. Liz Rue is an amazing young woman who I found through her TEDx talk. It is titled Run To, Not From, and I highly recommend you watch her talk. It's only 13 minutes long, and it is amazing. The link is in the show notes at feelgoodrunning.com. Now, I had a wonderful conversation with Liz, and I think the world of her, and you will too. So enjoy my conversation with soon-to-be Harvard grad, Liz Rue. Hi, Liz. How are you today? I'm doing great, Jim. How are you doing? Good, good morning. Good. Well, yeah, good morning to me and good late afternoon to you. Yeah, funny how that whole uh, time change thing works, you know? Well, it, it's tough because I, I do other stuff and I deal with the East Coast and I also do uh, deal with uh, the Midwest, uh, Central Time. So I have to get up pretty early to talk to people. And uh, you gave me the luxury of nine o'clock my time, three o'clock your time, because there's a six hour time difference. And I was able to get my run in this morning. So thank you. Oh, I'm glad to hear that. I got my run in too, but I think you must have been asleep for that one on my terms. I, w- I was probably sleeping and not even <laughs> thinking about running at that time. Exactly. Well, um, Liz, I, I just, uh, I don't even know where to, where to start with you. Um, you are, are 21 years old, getting ready to graduate uh, from Harvard. And uh, the life that you've led so far in your 21 years and what's been packed into your life in that short amount of time um, is unimaginable to many people because most of us don't experience what you've experienced, both in joy and in sorrow in that period of time. So... Um, I'm just trying to, to figure out 
where to take this with you. Um, so how I found you is through the TED Talk. I, I I just was blown away by it. I, you know, being running is a passion, but but your TED Talk was just phenomenal. You have 3,000 views right now. I went on before to take a look and see how many views you've had. You should have 3 million views in my <laughs> in my view uh, of it. So tell me about right now, you are graduating from Harvard. What, what is your degree going to be in? Uh, my degree will be in organismic and evolutionary biology, which is, it's a lot of syllables, but it's the, what I like to call, coin the, uh, the nature lovers biology. And I chose to do OEB is, is my acronym for it because I really do like nature. Grew up in Southwest Florida and, you know, surrounded by, by the ocean and the Everglades and all the really rich biodiversity of creatures down there. And that was a really important part of me growing up was being outside in, in every possible way I could. And I, I think, you know, I know this is a running podcast. I think one of the reasons I like running so much is because it, it forces me, it allows me to be outside. Um, in a similar way, studying OEB also lets me do that. Um, and I know I'm a little... Little starstruck that you just pointed out that I'm 21 years old and about to graduate because I, I I do feel pretty old, you know. I think 21 years, nothing to nothing to gawk at. I feel like there's been a lot of richness in life, and sort of don't want college to end either. I think I think everyone finds college a lot of fun. I I can understand why you would say you feel a, a little old there because you've had a lot of stuff in your life that that has happened. Um, and that you've experienced, that will make you feel old because of everything that you've gone through. So let's go back. You were born in China and at 15 months old, you were left on a street corner by your birth parents because they were hoping for a better life for you. Exactly. I think uh, it's, a, it's a little bit shaky on the actual dates, but I think it was close to 11 months old. Uh, 11 months old. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And it's been a fascinating thing for me growing up because I don't really have much touch with my Chinese identity. You know, I, I wasn't raised with uh, Chinese traditions or backgrounds or much cultural knowledge. Um, I don't remember anything, certainly. I don't speak Chinese. Um, and I think China is a very complicated place. So I'm very, very thankful for what my parents, my birth parents did for me to try to give me a new life since they couldn't provide the same. I've always been curious about trying to figure out who they are, um, but without any documentation, I think that's sort of hard. So what I try to do instead is just live, live a pretty good life so that, you know, if they ever think about me, they can know that they, they made the good call. Oh, absolutely. They would be very proud, I'm sure. And you ended up uh, in an orphanage in China, correct? Right. And based on your um, TED Talk, it, it was underfunded and you were suffering from a little bit of malnutrition. Right, yeah. The... Uh, I think because a combination of the one-child policy and then just the, the region I was in, uh, they, were, they were understaffed and underfunded. And so all the babies would share cribs. And so I remember when my mom first brought me home to America, she would comment on how I would sort of crawl sideways instead of forward because I was used to laying on one side of my body as a baby, you know, crammed in this crib with this other baby. And we were always fed um, with the leftover, like, rice mealy rice water type of stuff that you use after you take the rice out, after you boil it. Um, and so I was a pretty, pretty hungry baby. Um, one of my other funny stories was that on the plane ride back from China to the States, I apparently ate um, two McDonald's pancakes, a Big Mac, and a large fry um, as an 11-month-year-old, 
which I think is a pretty substantial fee. Yeah, that is. And you <laughs> picked a good, uh, out of anything at McDonald's, I love Big Mac. So good choice on that. <laughs> um, you know, the, the context of our discussions really are going to be around running, but I know that there there's two people and are a part of your life and still a part of your life, even though they're no longer with us, is your, your mom, Susan Wheeler Rue, and then David Paul Barlow. And so I want to be sure that we talk a lot about, about them because I think it's really important and it's a very big, important part of your life. At 11 years old, you were adopted by Susan. Well, first of all, how, how long were you in China? When did you come to the United States? And how did it all evolve where you were adopted by Susan? Yeah. So uh, based on the timelines I was given by the orphanage, uh, I was found on a street corner uh, pretty close to this rural area in like eastern central China. And the orphans took me in and I lived with them for 11, the first 11 months of my life. Uh, and then my mother traveled to China and adopted me. And I celebrated my first uh, birthday in, in America, in Florida, where my mom lived. And on my mom's side, she had always wanted kids. Um, and when things didn't work out on her end, she really devoted herself to adopting. And she, she purposely went through this pretty rigorous process. It took her about two years to go through this process because she wanted to make sure that she did it right. And she wanted to make sure that, you know, when, when her baby came home, that everything was, was, you know, quote unquote, perfect for them. Right. Like, uh, I think I said 11 years, but that wasn't correct. You were adopted before 11 years old, right? Oh, right. I was adopted 11 months, months. 11 months. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, and, and, and first up. birthday, first birthday in the States. Got it. Um, okay. Yeah, and then I, I guess, you know, I don't know if you believe in fate or if it just worked out really well, but um, my mom traveled to China and, and met me for the first time in a hotel where the nanny passed me off to her and they took a fingerprint or like a footprint of myself or something for Chinese authorities. And then next thing I knew, I was in Florida. Naples. Naples, yeah. Not, 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 a, bad, not a bad transition. Not at all. Naples is a, a sunny little paradise on the, on the Gulf Coast. It's pretty uh, pretty peaceful in that respect. The closest resemblance to Maui on the mainland, it would be Naples, Florida. <laughs> um, that makes okay. me happy to hear. Oh, yeah. You'll have to come out here sometime. You love the water, so you'll have to check it out because I, I think you would love it. It's just gorgeous, just just like Naples. Um, Tell me about your mom. Tell, what, what was she like and... I know she was an accountant. Right, right. You know, you'll have to, you might have to cut me off at some point. I have to talk about my mom forever. Um, I think, I, I always try to preface talking about my mom because I think we're all biased, right? We all we all love our family members and um, I think we all revere our mothers in particular. You know, children have special relationships with them. And so I try not to be biased, but I truly do think that she was a very, very radiant life force in the world. She... She grew up in eastern Florida, southeastern Florida, moved over to Naples area um, in her late 30s to start an accounting practice there. She grew up always loving nature as well. Her dream as a young girl was to become a dolphin trainer for SeaWorld. And the, the dolphin has always held a special place in my heart because of that, and because we see them around Naples all the time. My mom was not a runner, um, but she certainly encouraged me as much as she could um, partially maybe because of her own sake, because I had, I think from a young age, this vigor to go out and do things, to adventure, to go on adventures, as I call it. And I would always be perplexed as a little kid why we would walk places or drive places when we could 
well, you know, why didn't we run instead? It seemed like it was more fun. You'd be outside a little more. Um, so my mom really facilitated letting me harness that energy by, by running more competitively with school. She was also a very, very optimistic woman. I think life threw a really, really a lot of hard challenges at her and a lot of people that um, she always did her best by and didn't always, they didn't always return the favor. Um, she had this, this unyielding optimism that I would like to think or would hope that it would rub off on me a little bit as well. Um, and then she was also extremely strong, but both in terms of the way that she loved people and loved, loved the world and the animals and nature, but also um, when she was faced with hardship. So um, I remember when I was really, really young, probably like before kindergarten, my mother was diagnosed with cancer. And I don't remember much of it because I was so little. Um, apparently it was a pretty accelerated, aggressive form of cancer, but she fought it off, went to remission and told me it was because she wanted to, to watch me grow up. Um, and then, you know, you flash forward, my mom and I live our, our beautiful little life down in Florida, a very humble lifestyle. And uh, then when I turned 15, my mom gets diagnosed with cancer again. So um, the cancer comes back and uh, she passed away when I was 16. And I think one, of course, that was extremely hard for me because it was always pretty much just my mom and I. But also, I have never really seen anyone face an illness like that, a terminal illness with so much bravery and still trying to appreciate the little moments in life, which is something that I, I try to take to heart whenever things get rough for me. So you you had your, your first loss, which I, I don't know what the effects were when you were orphaned at 11 months. But then when you were 15 years old, your mom, she was diagnosed with the lung cancer, like you just mentioned. And your life changed a little bit at that point. You, uh, you all of a sudden switched all your resources of helping to your, to your mom. You took care of the house, you took care of the business, but you still ran because your mom knew that that was very important to you You're in your high school track meets and, and, and all of that. Definitely. I think it's one of the things I admire most about her because I think when she was diagnosed, she, she knew how bad diagnosis was. Of course, she was still going to fight it as long as she could. But I, I think it must have been very hard for her to not sort of try to implore me to just spend all the time that I could with her because she knew that it, she wanted quality, not quantity of time with me. And she knew that whatever hours I, I left her for to go run at practice or to go do a cross country race or a track race was, um, was really making my life better in, in the long run. I think she was trying to set me up for preparing for life without her in a way. And also still pursuing the things that, um, that I cared about a lot. Um, and you know, when I look back on it now, I definitely, I definitely wish that I spent as much time as I could with her, but I, I don't regret writing at all. I think it was, I think it was the best thing for both of us. And it certainly brought me and still brings me a lot of joy. Um, I think the only sad thing is I think my mom would have liked to be able to go see more of my races back in high school and was a little too sick to do that. Right. I lost my mother when I was 18 and I lost my father when I was 10. And there's things in my life that I've accomplished that I wish I, they would have been able to see and they never did. And you know, that's kind of a bummer for us that are left on this earth to to think about, but it is what it is in, in those situations. Um, I believe it was in your TED talk that you, there was some intuition. You were driving to 
your track practice or a meet. I'm not sure which one it was. What what was this intuition? What did you feel? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yes. I was, I was driving to cross country practice because we would always have practice in the evenings. And during this week, my mom had been in, she had had to go to the hospital for a respiratory shutdown a month prior. Um, and then a couple of days before this day happened, she came back home to our house, which she was really happy about, but she came back home with hospice care. And we, we both knew what that meant. And yet she still told me to go to practice. And so I did. Um, and, you know, it's starting to drizzle a little bit, rainy wise. And I'm driving down the road about five minutes away from our high school. And I get this weird feeling in my fingers. It was sort of like a tingling, sort of like if I was as if I was caffeinated. And it was the same feeling that I would always get before I would run a race. Um, most runners say that they get butterflies in their stomachs or sort of get a little short of breathing or something, but I would always get this tingle. Um, and it, it was throughout my body, but especially in my fingers and my toes. And so I wasn't really sure what to make of it, but something told me that I should turn the car around. And so I did, um, fingers kept tingling all the way home. And I went into the house and, um, sat with my mom and stood next to my mom's bedside for the next hour, holding her hand. And, and she passed away right there. And one, I, I haven't really processed why my fingers started tingling. I can't really explain it. It's one of those, one of those beautiful moments in life where something just greater than yourself, um, takes force in your life, I suppose. Um, but I am so, so thankful that that sensation happens because had I not turned around, I would have gotten back home from practice and it would have been too late. That was a very wonderful gift for you that, that intuition, whatever it was, because that was something that for the rest of your life, you'll have satisfaction that you were with your mom at that moment. And I know what it would probably have been like if you weren't, that would have been horrible for you. Mm -hmm. Uh, Three days later, you uh, PR'd, you (laughs) ran, ran a track meet and you PR'd. Yeah, that's right. Uh, I remember, so that night, that night after my mom passed away, my, my coach had known my coach knew that I had never missed practice. The only other time I had missed practice was when we found out about my mom's diagnosis. And so he knew that when I missed practice unannounced that night, he knew that something bad had happened. And a lot of my teammates came over to my house that night to, to come support me. Um, and then, yeah, you're right. Three days later, we had a race. And I remember my coach coming to my house the morning after my mom had passed away. Sitting down with me, I told him that I wanted to run the race. And he he looked at me sort of um, trying to be gentle, right? But he, he thought I was a little crazy and that I should definitely just take time to like, you know, recalibrate a little bit. And I told him that that was the way that I wanted to recalibrate was to um, spend time with and, and race with this, this family that I felt, which was my team. And because uh, I, I find running also as an incredible emotional outlet and a way to inspire a little bit of confidence in yourself when things are going rough because running is a hard thing to do. Um, so I, I went with them that morning to the race and ran, ran a personal best. And then the rest of that season, so my junior year season of high school, I think every race following that one also became a personal best or a PR. Um, so it was a very successful cross country season for me. And it was, um, totally, totally fueled by, by the emotion of my, of my mom. Um, I tried, I tried to throw a lot of it into my running, um, it was, it, you know, kill two birds with one stone. It was a great outlet, but also um, helped me untap a little bit more of my 
of my uh, love for running. There was one, a couple of things that really stood out. Um, and this, this part was in, was not in your blog and I'm going to be sure to talk about your blog and for people to read those because they're very good. You have a friend, Caitlin, or I, I'm not sure if you're, you still are connected with Caitlin, but she was your running buddy. And this is prior to your mom passing away. She was going through her, her treatments and, and all of that and couldn't do much of anything. But you were running with Caitlin one day and uh, Caitlin kind of turned to you and said, snap out of it. Can you tell me about that? Because you talk about tunnel vision and running, but you were just kind of coming down on yourself and she kind of snapped you back into reality. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I do keep in touch with Tate, Caitlin. Caitlin was a year older than me. So she was a senior on the team when I was a junior. And um, when all, all this was going down with my mom, we were about uh, the same speed running wise. So we'd run together a lot during our practices and we always chat a little about how things were going. And she was one of the teammates I was really confiding about what was going on at home. Because when my mom was sick and I was taking care of her and everything, you know, it was sort of like very compartmentalized, two different worlds where everything except for my mom, you know, my life uh, in high school and, and doing schoolwork and, and going to practice was one thing and then taking care of my mom the other. And so Caitlin was one of those unique two where I could sort of combine and transition between the two. And um, it came to a point where it was two days before my mom had passed away, I think. And my mom uh, had just come home with hospice and I, I felt pretty, pretty deep in despair. So I went to practice that evening and Caitlin asked how I was doing. And, uh, you know, eventually she worked it out of me that my mom had come home from the nursing home um, and that hospice was there. And that I, I, I just felt very desolate. You know, I felt like everything I had done. Uh, was for naught because my mom was still going to, to die pretty soon. And I felt horrible that my mom was suffering and I didn't know what to do um, when she would pass away either. And I, I felt like giving up a little bit, you know, all the effort I'd put in for everything to try to keep things going, both for myself and my mom, uh, seemed to fall apart a little bit. And Caitlin, Caitlin knew me very well. She also knew how my, how my body, my brain responds when I run. And what I explained a little bit in the TED talk is that when I run, I sort of get a tunnel vision where it's, you know, my eyes are trained forward. You know, I'm just focusing on the cadence of my feet and my breathing. And the only thing I can really focus on beyond that is whoever is talking to me. And so when I have a running buddy, you know, we'll talk and I'll become so engrossed in that conversation that sometimes I'll, I'll look up and realize that we've run a couple of miles. I, I almost like didn't even realize it because I was just listening to the conversation. It's like a sensational limits almost where it's just like a lot less input that's getting perceived by me. And so Caitlin knew that she had to do something to get me to really take to heart that I had to snap out of, you know, this whole despair thing, right? Cause that wasn't going to help anyone. And so what she did was she stopped running and she sort of just stopped point blank and uh, looked at me instead of looking forward, she just looked me in the eyes and told me that I had to snap out of it. And she wasn't, she wasn't being mean about it. She wasn't being callous or arrogant about it. She just, she knew that she had to really shell shock me. And when she stopped running and snapped me out of my tunnel vision, and when she said that and looked me in the eyes, uh, you know, I'm not really used to looking anyone in the eyes when I'm running. I'm used to just looking at where I'm going. And so that really somehow got to me. And then I went home that night and I had 
this new perspective um, that I sort of came to peace with the whole hospice situation. Um, I could sort of dig myself out of that hole of despair and just sort of focus on spending time with my mom while I could and um, trying to get, regain the perspective that I wanted to live my life by. And uh, yeah, I, and I attribute all that to, to Caitlin. She seems to have been a rock in your life at that time. Mm-hmm. She definitely was. And I, I think there was so much going on at that time. I didn't even really get to thank her for it until afterwards, but she, she definitely was a rock. Well, we'll thank her now. Thank you, Caitlin. Thank you, Caitlin. What is really amazing, and I know you experienced this uh, during this period of time with your mom prior to her passing when you had to take care of everything and the medical bills started piling up. Running, running community, I don't care if it's a local running community or if it's in your, your school or whatever, it is a wonderful family and a wonderful community. And they helped you during this period of time, you did a fundraiser and mm-hmm. you got a pile of cash and you went home with this pile of cash in your hand and showed your mom. Tell me about that. That I think that is um, hands down one of the proudest moments in my life um, because I think I, I got to do something solely for my mom. Um, and I got to have other people do things, something solely for my mom. And that, that made me so happy. What had happened was about a month and a half before my mom passed away, I was getting ready to start my junior year of high school. And I was worried about what would happen when I wasn't home the entire summer to take care of my mom. And since she was getting sicker too. And so I also realized that, you know, my mom had been working cause she was so sick. And so we were starting to get into a bit of debt with, you know, pile up of medical bills and other bills without income. So I reached out to my local running club in, in the city of Naples. It's called uh, Gulf Coast Runners. And I reached out to them and asked if we could sort of do a little bit of a fundraiser. And what it was was just a, you know, an evening run based, you know, out of the running store. And I thought, you know, maybe my team would come and a couple of other people from the community would go for a little run around the town and eat some food and chance for people to like, you know, drop some coins in the jar for me on their, on their way out. Um, and instead over like 200 people showed up to this run and, um, so many that, you know, I was going to thank whoever showed up to the run in person. And because there were so many people, I had to climb up onto a ladder in the parking lot and sort of yell at them all to thank them. And after the run, you know, I walked away with, you know, thousands and thousands of dollars in my hands. It was more money than I ever held for sure. And I went, um, and showed my mom that night. And I was, I was so excited because I'm, I thought that, you know, taking care of my mom, I suppose is tangible and keeping a good perspective is tangible, but this would really solve a very, very tangible economic issue that we had going on. And I felt like I was providing for the family and doing something really substantial. And my mom being an accountant, I thought she would really understand and appreciate the importance of the money. And so I walked into the room and was so excited to, to show her. And when she saw the money that I was holding, of course, you know, she started tearing up a little bit. I think a couple of tears streamed down her face. And she told me that she was so proud of me. But she made a big effort to tell me that she was proud of me, not because of the money that I had. You know, she didn't really care about all that. She was proud of me for, like, really trying to take initiative to make, to make our lives better on her behalf. And that she was so happy that there was this huge running community. Even most of the people, you know, who showed up to that run, I, I didn't even know. But she was so thankful that there was this big community and family going on around me and that, 
you know, runners support runners and runners feel for each other and pocket change is really easy to give out in those situations. And I think she was also glad that, you know, if, if, if she ended up passing away, that there would be a lot of people that I could lean on in the running community, both strangers and, and teammates and everything in between. Uh, that was, that was a really special, special day for me. I think in everybody's life who has been runners, their running community has gotten them through a lot of things. I know it has me and I'm so grateful for you that you had that at that time because that was that was important. It probably along with the fundraising and the money that you got, it was a very, very good comforting mental state that they put you in almost like being in a comforter in a bed. That would be your running group at that time or your runners and running community. So that that was great. And I'm very happy that that was a lesson that you learned there. And your mom, she always inspired adventure and passion in you. And obviously you have taken that to heart through your life. Your mom wanted something after she passed away and it took you two and a half years to, to be able to accomplish this. Now we're fast forwarding quite a way, but I'll, I'll come back to where, to this point. But um, tell me about, about what she wanted and you worked very hard to get it done and you did get it done. <laughs> yeah. So my mom and I were both very much oceanic nature loving souls and I remember when I was eight or nine, she saw this newspaper clipping uh, in the local newspaper talking about this company that would turn your ashes into a coral reef. And my mom was a big time scuba diver back in the day before she had me. And every moment we had was outside or at the beach. And so this seemed like the natural like ending to her life. And of course, at the time, you know, I thought this would be something I'd be handling when I was 40 or 50 years old, you know, like nothing, nothing soon in the future. But she told me that that's what she wanted, um, sort of casually, sort of jokingly, and I, and I took it to heart. And it would come up a couple other times uh, between age 9 and 15, and and so it was pretty ingrained by the time she got sick. When she passed away, um, you know, I, I organized a small little memorial service on the beach for her at sunset, but I was trying to save up as much money as I could to turn her ashes into a coral reef. And, you know, me being in high school and now totally out on my own, uh, took me quite a while to save up the money. And, and like you said, it took two and a half years. So I was, uh, you know, over a year into college by the time I was able to make this happen, but I did, um, send her ashes off to, to this company after raising the money. And, um, she, her ashes were incorporated and cremated into a, a, a coral reef, which is a, it's an artificial reef that you sink off the coast of Florida and then sits down there on the, on the seafloor and, um, animals and corals and sponges start living on it as a, as a substrate. And it, it brings new life to the world in a very oceanic way. And I think that was the coolest idea for me is that even in death, my mom gets to, to bring life and brightness to the world. And I think one of the happiest moments in my life was this past summer. So, you know, two and a half years after my mom passes away, I'm able to, to turn her into a coral reef um, another year and a half after that, I raised up the money. My new project was to raise up money to, to get scuba certified, um, and to go visit her reef because the reef is sunk, you know, about 40 feet below the water. Um, so this past summer I went and scuba dove to her reef and it was teeming. There was this, this gigantic school of fish swimming through it. There were crabs living on it. It was covered in like orange and yellow corals. Um, and that, and there was a plaque on it where I wrote a little poem about her and, 
you know, wrote, wrote the dates of her life and her full name. And I think, I think that is something beautiful. I'm going to try to save up money to, to go scuba dive there around about every year, just to clean off the plaque and uh, see how much more grows there. That's amazing. Excuse me. That's amazing. It's uh, to, to do something like that is just amazing. And, and what a, what a memorial for your mom, but what a living memorial. And that's exactly what she would have loved to be in the ocean with the fish and everything else. So that that's very nice of you to have done that. Let me ask you on the plaque. You wrote something that said, lover of people, animals, land, and sea. May you bring this world life for eternity. Is that what's on the plaque? Yeah, that is. Very nice. Like I said at the beginning, I don't know where to take all this, but uh, you have so many, so many great things that you've done. Um, and that's, that's one of them. So good on you. And I would really love you if you're ever out there and you take a picture underwater, because I knew you wanted to learn how to scuba dive based on reading your blog. That was one of your big goals. If you could share a picture with me, and I'll always be happy to keep putting it into the show notes, because this will be evergreen. It'll live, live forever on the podcast. Um, so I'll be happy to add a picture of that if you ever have one. Oh, I, I definitely do. So I love that. Thank you. You got it. So jumping back after your, your mom passed away, your coach really, really had a, a lot of feeling for you and wanted you to be taken care of. And so the Barlow family became your, your second unofficial adopted family. <laughs> Correct. Yeah. You had an instant family. You had uh, two brothers and a sister that came along with that, plus a new mom and dad. Exactly. Yeah, I think... You know, I feel like that's a detail that's often skimmed over when, when I try to recount like my my life saga, right? But I think it really is extraordinary that this family just decided to take in a fourth kid. You know, they they've got their hands full with three kids, they have their own life to live. You know, they're busy enough. And my, my coach supported me to an incredible extent while I was his team you know, on his team. And then he really went the extra mile when my mom started getting sick to to help me out. Um, and just give me that emotional support. And then when my mom passed away, I was 16, you know, I had about almost two years before I would, you know, become 18 and not need a legal guardian. And so, you know, when I was thrown into a legal guardianship and it didn't really work out the way I wanted it to, my coach was really there to help me out, you know, um, let me come over to his house for dinner, you know, a couple of times after practice a week and really just always took the extra amount of checking on me. And then when I turned 18 and didn't need a legal guardian anymore, um, my coach said, hey, why don't you come hang out with us, you know, like permanently? And but next thing I knew, you know, instead of ringing the doorbell, I was just walking straight in the house, you know, or I had the garage code key and um, started calling my coach dad and his calling his wife mom. And then, yeah, I, I got three siblings, too, which was it was extraordinary on, on, on multiple fronts. Um because I, I never really been used to having two parents, let alone siblings as well. Um, but I think it was mostly extraordinary that they decided to take me in during a very difficult part of their own lives. Because the, right around the time where they unofficially adopted me, per se, um, their youngest son, so my, my newfound little brother, David, was diagnosed with cancer. And when I found out about that, it seemed pretty natural to me that they were just sort of you know, say, you know, we did our best, you know, we really love you, but we have to go take care of our kid right now and have to focus on that. 
I was fully prepared for that and prepared to, you know, take a step back. But instead they said, you know, you're in this with us till the end. like, you know, come on, jump on the wagon, you know, let's go for the ride. And so instead of backing down when something, you know, horrific happened in their own family, they, um, they took me in even more. And then David being sick wasn't a them problem anymore. It wasn't, it was an all of us problem. How did Memphis come into this? Now your coach was your coach in Naples. Uh, was coach Barlow in Naples when you were in high school or yeah, uh, I was yeah. trying to figure out the, the Memphis connection here. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a little complicated. So yeah, my coach, coach Barlow, who I, who I now call my dad is, was my cross country coach and track coach in high school in Naples. And when, you know, by this point I've, I've turned 18 and I've graduated from high school, right. So about to go off to college. Um, and my other two siblings are older, so they're already in college. David's still in, in grade school. And when David gets diagnosed, it's a really rare type of cancer. And so the only place that's having a clinical trial on this type of cancer is St. Jude Children's Research Hospital in Memphis, Tennessee. And so the family relocated to Memphis for him to get treatment. And he would go into the hospital every single day, pretty much, for different treatments and checkups and um, visits to different doctors. Um, and so in order to facilitate that hands-on care, we decided to move. Um, and that didn't affect me too much at first because I was about to go off up here to Boston for college. Um, and so I'd only go home to Memphis for, for uh, school breaks. But for them, that was a complete life shift, right? Because my parents had to scramble and find new jobs and also adopt this entirely new lifestyle, taking care of David in a very, very new place that they didn't really know about before. So that's how Memphis came in. And St. Jude's, I know, is really, really important to you. You did mention in one of your blogs, it sounded like you were somewhat angry when David was diagnosed with cancer, that tragedy seems to follow you. And you felt a little guilty about that going into another family. Was that accurate when you were writing that? Um, yeah, yeah, I think so. You know, the side note on my blog is that I started it right after I graduated from high school and it was designed at first to just keep in touch with friends and family as I, as I moved to a different area, but it's also become sort of a, a platform for me to not only keep people updated, but to, to create a time capsule for my life. So I think in that moment, it was true that I, I think I resented Memphis because I, I loved growing up in Florida and I related a lot of growing up in Naples, Florida, and all the things I, I loved there to my mom. And so having to leave that permanently made me sad because I felt like I was losing that connection to my mom. It also made me sad because it seemed that um, having to go to Memphis seemed like it was uprooting my family, my, my newfound family. I, I felt bad for them for that. I was also very upset that, that David had gotten diagnosed because, you know, for, for the few of us who, who were blessed to, to know David, he was a very contagious and, and lovable personality. And for this innocent kid to get diagnosed, that just seemed like a horrific thing. Um, and I also, I have this thing where I think we all have to some extent, we don't like to burden others, right? And, and I have that to a pretty strong extent. And it, it culminated in the fact that I'm not used to living in a family larger than me and one other person who, who was my mom. And so having to adapt to sort of figure out um, a larger family dynamic and how to figure out how my family in particular, you know, did their, did their thing. Um, 
was, was challenging enough for me and then throw into the mix that now, you know, right at the same time that I'm coming into this new family, um, their kid gets diagnosed with cancer. I felt like I was sort of a bad luck charm on them. You know, I felt like I was burdening them more by having them keep me around instead of just being able to focus solely on David. And I felt like maybe, you know, it felt like a, like a cruel twist of fate that, you know, but, you know, worst case scenario, say David died, you know, a new now they have a new kid to replace them at the burden. It just, it felt like a bit of a, a cruel twist of fate. Um, that was your perception. And that absolutely was not the perception of anybody else. That was just your perception and the thoughts in your mind. Exactly. Exactly. And I, I think it was because I was still coming off of dealing with the grief from my mom and I wasn't sure how to navigate the whole family thing. But I think, I think it mostly just shows how extraordinary my family is again, that they, they saw through those, those emotions of mine. Um, and they decided that, you know, when times get tough, they're not just going to love, um, David, they're going to, they're going to love me too and, and take me on. Absolutely. And they did, they did very much there. You know, there was not one other family that seemed to have been very, very, and probably still is to this day, very important into your life. Um, and I don't know a lot about them, um, but you do re- reference them quite a bit. It's the Staub family. Yeah, yeah. So the the Staub family are probably some of our closest family friends. Um, they're about the same age, both uh, the husband and wife, and then their kids as as my family. And so they both um, have been very close for a while. The youngest Staub son was David's best friends, um, and so we've been very close with them. And I spent um, some time living with them before I came to college. Um, so yeah, I, I definitely consider them a second family. And they've helped you every time. I, I think they even let you use a car when you're down in Naples at, at certain times from what I've read. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's definitely fun for me to go drive around town and stuff. Yeah. So you, you started, um, Harvard in 2015 and, uh, it seems like you adapted quickly. You got right into the Harvard college running club and uh, started to train six days a week, four to my four to ten miles a day. How is that experience? And are you still with them now? I know you're graduating, but uh, have you gone through all four years with the track, uh, the uh, running club? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I have. Um, so I think uh, coming into freshman year, I definitely wanted to get into a running community. I think one because it was always the most comfortable and familiar to me. I think there's a certain breed of person who's a runner and you sort of, we, we clicked in certain ways and it was versatile enough to be very inclusive to a bunch of different types of personalities and, and interesting people. Right. It's not just, I hang out with only nature loving biology nerds. Right. You know, I get to hang out with anyone who likes to run, which is fun. Mm-hmm. And so when I walked in, it definitely was a little more intense than high school. I think, you know, um, we were no longer competing in state championships, but the, the intensity and frequency of running was hard. And that was really nice for me to focus on, you know, during all the hecticness of starting college. That was something to really ground me. Um, and I got to compete with running club all the way up to the club national championships. And I competed on and off with them through cross country and track season throughout my four years. And I've also served as the women's captain um, for three of those four years. Nice. So I just actually gave up my tenure in December um, and so I haven't been training with them quite as much this senior spring. I'm letting the younger generations take over, but it has definitely been, it was definitely my first family at Harvard. And I think it always will be a family. Didn't you also have a, a, a small job too, of, uh, doing, uh, runs through Boston with Harvard students and staff? Yeah. 
Yeah. And I, I actually still continued that. I'll continue that through graduation, I think. And that job is, um, so I'm on full financial aid at school. So I always have a part-time job and I picked that up pretty early into my college career. It's called Harvard on the move. Um, it's with the center for wellness at school and also with the recreation group, Harvard recreation. The idea is just to try to encourage people to get outside and have some fun. And running is a pretty good conduit for that. So like this morning I, I let a run, I lead runs three days a week and two professors showed up and um, some undergraduate students and a couple graduate students and some of them even brought their dog. And it's really, it's really casual and really nice. You know, the weather was beautiful today. We all go around and say our names and, and how far and how fast you want to go. Someone jogged with their dog for half a mile, um, which was super great. Um, some of the professors ran 15 miles because they're training for the Boston Marathon and everything in between. And that's really nice, too, because while running club is really nice, it feels sort of more like high school in terms of uh, competing against other college teams um, and having a pretty rigorous training schedule. Harvard on the Move is nice because it's a little more just trying to show people that running can be fun and very community driven. Well, yeah, you have that little race coming up in a couple of weeks in that town. I think some people may have heard of it. It's called the Boston Marathon. Just a small little race. Do you get involved with that at all as far as any support or aid stations or anything like that out there? Or is, are you basically not connected in with them at all? Yeah, I, I would like to say that I'm one of the biggest cheerleaders at the Boston Marathon. When I first came into Harvard, Bigger I than thought, Wellesley? Uh, you know, I, I, I don't like to compare, but uh, uh, right. <laughs> <laughs> I, I try to do my best. When I first came into Harvard, I thought that I was going to try to run Boston one of these years and then realized that as much as I love running, running Boston is like one of those like lifetime goals for a very serious runner. And I, um, I'm still working up to that, to that level, I think fitness wise. However, my friends and I, my team and I actually always run into Boston from Harvard. So it's, you know, not too bad. It's about three miles into the city and we'll go cheer on all of our other teammates and any, any other family members, et cetera, that we know who are running it. And we make signs and, it's, and and I find that a very good time too. I think the Boston Marathon is super super inspiring, especially my favorite place to go is you know I run from Harvard to MIT, then cross the river into Boston, and then you're right there at mile twenty five point five, I think, mm-hmm. and so that's when people are really feeling it. So you either see them hobbling along, really you know fighting through the wall, and that's something really inspirational to cheer for, or you see them really going strong, um, but. There's so many different flavors of runners at the Boston Marathon. It's a really, really fun thing to be a part of. I've run it twice and I know exactly how you, your explanation is spot on on that. It's a, it's a phenomenal race. And, you know, what's great about the Boston Marathon is that everybody that is running it, unless they're doing it on the charity portion of it, has run another marathon and qualified. So they've worked extremely hard to be able to get into Boston. So, you know, hats off to everybody that does that race. It's, it's, it's really a motivating race. I'll tell you that. Um, yeah. Congrats to you for running it twice. Yeah. Well, no small you know, feet. That, yeah. That was back in the day when I was doing my, all my marathons. Uh, don't do much of that anymore. I do halves and 10 Ks and five Ks. Um, so in your blog, um, and, and I'm going to put a link to your blog if it, if, with your permission on the show notes. Of course, of course. Um, and you, you really go through a lot in your blog. You go through a lot of um, reflection on your life, uh, analysis of things that happen in your life, 
fun things that are going on in your life, like your trip to Tanzania, um, which seems to have been uh, actually not only a trip, you lived there for a little bit, I believe, for a couple months. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, there, there was a lot of, you kind of incorporated a lot of things. You, your, your love for Naples and wanting to get back into the warm sunshine. You talked about Memphis. You talked about David in there. You talked about your mom in there. Um, when I fly, and I don't know if you feel the same way, um, but when I fly, I look out, out of the window, and the world looks so small at that point. You know, I feel like I'm above the clouds and everything below. It, my mind just goes, I think, and I, I feel like I get motivated when I look at that. Do you, do you feel the same way? Because I saw some references and some pictures in there when you're flying and you show the clouds. Mm-hmm. I think, if anything, I, I find that I... I find that the world looks incredibly large um, when I fly. And I think even though we're so far removed from the ground, you can see such vast expanses of the world. And it makes me wonder that if, you know, if this is all that I can see right now in this little pocket of the world, I, I like pointing out, you know, some of those airlines have a map of where you are when you're flying so that you can relate it to when you look out the window. And if I'm like, okay, you know, I'm over Philadelphia right now and this is all that I can see. I know in my head that Philadelphia is a very, very small part of the world. And if the world looks so big in just this area around Philadelphia, you know, God knows how big the world actually is. And me, I'm, I'm, you know, one tiny person among the hundred other people in this little metal tube hurtling through space, right? That, that is a really humbling moment for me. I think, I think every time, every so often, I really need those experiences that make me feel small because I feel like when you feel small, you appreciate things a lot more. Um, and, and furthermore, I think when you feel small, you find a lot more beauty in life because you can understand that it's, it's a little impermanent and, and you're, you're just lucky enough to get to be a part of it. Yeah. I, I, it's, it's just strange thing. Now I, my perception is a little bit different. I just feel like I'm above and, and it just makes me feel like I can do so much more with my life. And I just plan on that. I, but I understand your point too. It's, it's amazing. Anyways, that was going off in a little, little different direction there. But let's go back to um, your brother, David. He passed away on April 10th, 2017. And when you were doing your TED Talk, I noticed when you got to the point where you mentioned David's name, you looked down, you paused, and I could tell at that moment that you went back to that moment, the day that he passed away, and you... I could tell the emotion in just the way you were looking. You could tell it right in your face. Can you tell me about David and let everybody know what he was like? Because you really explain a lot in your blogs of what a wonderful person David was. Oh, I would love to tell you about David. David is unique because, you know, I really only got to know him as a little brother for about two years of my life, right? Because there was about two years before, between the time when I came into my family and when David passed away. And in those short two years, I realized even before I started calling my coach dad, right, that I loved David in in a way that transcended, you know, a sibling relationship or a friendship relationship. He was just one of those very charismatic and gentle, but also goofy characters that, you know, I, I, I hadn't met a lot in life. He had, he, um, he is the best hugger, I think. And when he hugs you, um, or when he hugged you, David, um, 
felt like he was a bit of an angel and also a goofy little kid. And he was so multifaceted in that way. And he could turn the most stoic, macho, tough guy into, into a hugger. And he could, you know, melt, melt a mother or a sister's heart in an instant. He also was very stubborn and not in a combative way. He just, he decided what he wanted to spend his life on and what he thought was important in life. And he refused to spend time or spend energy on things that weren't important to him. And I think that's something that I would like to do more of because I feel like I'm often pulled in different directions by all these things. And David really had his priorities set. He also is, I think, the most intelligent person that I've ever met in, in the sense that he would make the world's best lawyer. I think he has a very unique way of arguing where he can just, even if he's arguing something that's a false claim, he like he will make you believe it. And I who like to have, you know, little, I, I call them debates. My mother calls them arguments, but in any case about, you know, whatever it may be, David would always win hands down. I, I stopped trying after a while. And so I, I had a lot of respect for the kid I also had a lot of respect for the way that he was sort of a glue to the family. You know, he was the youngest in the family. He was def- he was adored by his siblings, his parents and grandparents and uncles. And, um, and it astounded me how someone could have such an impact on so many people around them and how everyone revered him in that way, you know, myself included. And now when you, when you referenced that part in the TED Talk where I talked about David passing away, I, I, it did take me back to that moment. Now, I remember, I remember that those 24 hours prior to him passing away very vividly, um, I was on campus in the middle of uh, training to, to become certified in wilderness first aid because I do a lot of outdoorsy things here on campus in addition to running. And in the middle of the class, I'm in the middle of a medical simulation, I think. I was giving someone CPR and my phone goes off. And so I ran outside to check in and my dad called me and said that I had to come home ASAP. I remember sprinting from where the certification class was all the way back to my dorm room. Um, and I don't know how I did it because I, 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 I covered the distance pretty quickly. And somehow during that time, I had also found a flight while I was running on my phone. Um, wow. And a couple. Yeah, no kidding, right? Crazy what adrenaline does for you. Right. And one of my roommates, um, my boyfriends, helped me get to the airport and get on a flight really last minute. And within three hours, you know, I was, I was in the sky, um, hurtling towards Memphis and I arrived at the house at about 2 AM on the morning of April 10th and went in and stayed up until about 9 PM that night when David passed away. And, you know, my parents were there, grandparents, siblings, and it was an incredibly sad time for us, but it was also, I was incredibly proud of my family. You know, they didn't hide their tears, but they didn't you know, it definitely wasn't about them. It was about David and we were all took shifts watching him and taking care of him. Um, we were all able to like hold a, hold a hand or hold on to a part of his body when he passed away. And, um, I think he knew that we were there too. So it was, it was incredibly important bonding moment for us. You know, if, you know, I, I say a little dryly cause of course I was part of the family by that point, but if I had any doubt that I was a part of this family, there was no doubt after that day, you know, that, that's something that you can never really go back from. You wrote in your blog this this one section that I I think that it really says exactly what you were just saying. What you wrote is, given the nature of my adoption and the events following my mother, mother's death, family has and continues to be 
a complicated matter. But if my soul searching has taught me anything, it is that I would give it all for the people that I love. This family is true and wonderful and good. This family reminds me that life is good and that choices, rather than circumstances, define who we are and who we can be. Above all, this family is mine and I will do anything for them. For David, that means being a big sister to him as long as I can. I think that tells the whole story right there of your feeling for the family and how how you feel a part of them. And I'm sure they feel the same way for you. Um, Question for you. St. Jude's. You're involved in Memphis with the St. Jude's Foundation with David's team. Tell me how that all came about and how that's growing. Yeah. So... Yeah, I alluded to it a little bit when we when we moved to Memphis for David to be treated there. But St. Jude's is a is a world class pediatric research hospital, and they are the only, one of the only places doing the clinical trial on his type of cancer. And beyond doing really really awesome scientific research in the in the medical field, they are like the most compassionate and holistic medical institution I've ever met. I wish every hospital could have the resources and the compassion that they do. David could go in at any time of day or night. Um, they would always really care about not only David, but the entire family. And even they understood that David wanted to be home for most of his treatment. And so they delivered his medicines to our house via a private van a couple times a week and taught my mom how to administer his medication so that David could be home. And I think that really helped his quality of life. I think their focus on family is incredibly important. And so we tried to give that back to them many times over every year. I think it's the it's the weekend after Thanksgiving weekend. So usually about the first weekend of December. They have a big marathon weekend in Memphis um, to raise money for St. Jude's. So my family every year since moving up there has created a team called Team David. And it began as my dad and a couple of his buddies from high school and college Running, you know, the, you know, there's a variety of distances you can do the 5K, the 10K, the half or the full marathon. And so they just got together and did that. And David, even though he was sick, he was feeling well enough, he'd usually go out onto the streets and cheer my dad on and, and, and some of our family members and friends. The year after David passed away, that was a real call to action to us to really make Team David something not only to memorialize David and and to gather, you know, all of our loved ones together, like an extended Thanksgiving, but also to really pay it forward to St. Jude's because without St. Jude's, David would have had a lot shorter of a life and a lot more painful of a life than than he did. They, They gave us so many blessings in a lot of ways. And so Team David has become something really powerful where it's now, you know, well over, we have over 100 members that show up every year to run with us or to cheer us on or walk or both. Um, and we've raised well over $100,000 for the hospital so far. Hope to raise, you know, toward, I, you know, I, I continue, I intend to, to run for, with, for St. Jude's with my family until I can't run anymore. So hopefully, you know, 80 plus years old as far as the knees don't give out. And hopefully we'll raise lots of not only money for the hospital, um, but we'll also raise a lot of awareness for all the great things it does. And I think the reason that we try so hard to fundraise for the hospital is because St. Jude's, beyond being super compassionate and super impressive scientifically, is that it's free. So any family that's accepted as patients at St. Jude are never given a bill. 
And so David, in his two years of treatment there, accrued over $2 million in medical expenses that my family had to pay none of. Um, they also gave my family temporary housing until we could find a job and settle into the Memphis area. And I think that's the most extraordinary thing is it's extraordinary care, it's compassionate care, and it's free care. Um, and the, all those blessings, like, you know, how can we not pay that forward? So Team David and, and, the, and the entire gathering that we do every year has been, it's hardcore, you know, downright my favorite weekends of the year every year. Um, and I, I really hope that as I and my siblings start getting older, um, that we can, you know, really grow it and, and make it a very, very fond event for, you know, you know, reunion of family and friends and, and we're remembering David. One comment on St. Jude's, a lot of us who are not, are not familiar with St. Jude's as far as having any involvement with them, pretty much what we know of St. Jude's is right around the holidays, the commercials come on television, get a few things in the mail, but really don't know a lot about it unless you have experienced somebody who has been connected with St. Jude. So I really appreciate you explaining what they do much more in depth. And it sounds so wonderful that the money that people donate to St. Jude's is actually going to help families. When you say $2 million worth of medical bills and they never got or medical treatments and they never got a bill and they put the family up for housing uh, until they could get housing and did all this stuff to make things very comfortable and give the best chance, you know, either for remission or for a comfortable transition. Um, thanks for explaining that because I did not know the extent of what they do. Yeah. I mean, I, I appreciate you asking too, because I, I feel like it's hard um, if St. Jude themselves were going to try to advertise all this for themselves, right? I feel like people are sometimes skeptical of, you know, if they donate money, if it's going to actually go to a good cause. And even I was skeptical at first too, but St. Jude's really is the real deal. Um, I, I just wish there was enough money in the world that every hospital could function like they do and do for families, like what they do for families. Well, that's, uh, that, that helped your family, the Barlow family so much during that. And, um, that's, that's absolutely amazing. Now, how do people find out how to get connected in with Team David um, if they want to, to donate? I'll, I'll put it in the show notes, but if you can tell people how they can help if they feel they want to contribute. Right. I mean, the easiest way would probably um, for me to give them my email, which you can put in the show notes, and then reach out to me. Okay. Sign-ups for, for Team David and for the St. Jude Marathon weekend usually happen in about April, May time. Um, and so when you coming sign up, up, you can just, yeah, coming up, when you sign up, uh, you can just say that you're going to join team David and then we'll put you on our email list and get you in touch to get a t-shirt and come hang out with us and take the group photo and everything as well. Um, my email would also, you know, I could provide people links if they reach out for our personal donating fund fundraising pages. Um, I try to raise at least $3,000 a year personally. Um, I know a lot of my siblings and family members do the same, but yeah, that would probably be the best way. And you reached that goal this past year. Yes. Team David raised a hundred grand in 2017. Um, what about last year? Last year was right around a hundred too. I think we nice. think we're, you know, somewhere, I think 85 or 90,000, I think. Wow. And you ran the half in two hours and 11 minutes. Good job. Yeah. Thanks. 
would have liked to run a little faster if it wasn't for the injury. So that's hopefully what this year coming up will will lead. I'd like to to really run the half pretty pretty swiftly and then move on to the marathon after that. Yeah, but what you said what you said in one of your blogs, runners run for a purpose. That is what we do. Don't care how far how fast you run, just about why. Exactly. So don't worry exactly. about the time. Um, I have a, a couple questions for you, and then um, we'll we'll finish it up here. Can you tell me what the heck cane toad hunting is? <laughs> sure. Yeah. So uh, cane toads are an invasive toad, right? And and they're pretty big problem in Florida. They have like this poisonous skin, so that if your dog gets his mouth around one, the dog will get pretty sick. Same with little kids. And the cane toads eat a bunch of small stuff, anything that's smaller than them, and don't have any natural predators. So they wreak a lot of havoc in the Florida habitats. And so um, our family friends, their neighbors will pay money um, per toad if we can eliminate them from their neighborhood because it's really bad for the dogs and kids. And so a couple of family friends and I went out and we hunted a bunch of cane toads down. And what we would do is we would track down a cane toad um, you know, kill it, try to kill it pretty humanely, but pretty quickly. And then I, they're so thick. It's like a giant pancake, um, but also really, a really tall giant pancake, like a stack of pancakes, right? And so the only way to grab them without really getting harmed, the easiest way we found that was to pitchfork them once they're dead. And so we, we'd kill a tame toad, I'd skewer it on the, on the pitchfork and then try to scrape it off into the trash can. Um, and that, you know, I, I guess it's a little more vulgar than mowing lawns for money, but it definitely did a public service to the community, I would hope. Well, yeah. And then getting to the same point about mowing lawns, when you're in college, sometimes you get part-time jobs that a lot of people recognize could be a bartender, could, you know, do all these little small jobs. But you became a poison dart frog caretaker. And what is that? <laughs> yeah, I feel like, you know, these stories really paint me as a frog lover. You know, I love all animals. Frogs aren't, I, I, I certainly prefer dolphins over frogs, but yeah, I was looking, you know, I'm full financial aid here at school and was looking for a campus job and found an opening to take care of poison dart frogs for a biology lab that we have here, here at Harvard. And so I go in my freshman year for about 15 hours a week and I'd feed the frogs and clean the frogs and change their ponds and, uh, even do a, a couple like minor breeding experiments with them because poison dart frogs are these really small, cute, brightly covered, charismatic little creatures. Um, so that was a fun job for a while, especially me being from Florida and going to work in the winter. You know, I'd trek across campus in the snow in my winter coat and then bring a change of clothes, a tank top and shorts basically to be inside the frog lab because it's 80 degrees and super humid in there for these poison dart frogs are used to living in tropical rainforests. Um, and that was the campus job that I held before I got the, the Harvard on the move running job. Nice. Not a career. Not, not a career. I don't think, I think, uh, I really, I love nature. I really do would like to help people too and interact with them a little more, but I certainly, it was, it was a fun, a fun little venture to have for my first year. That's so cool. <laughs> um, another thing, do you still get involved with Krav Magna? Um, Krav Maga. Krav Maga is, yeah, no, I know. I, I didn't know how to pronounce it the first time either. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, I, I actually fell out of Krav Maga a little bit halfway through college because I got a concussion from doing Krav Maga. And so I decided I'd take the L and, and start focusing more on different types of athletic endeavors. Um, but I did do Krav Maga for the first two years of college and 
it was a good time. It, it's Krav Maga is the type of martial art slash um, like combat contact that they teach the Israeli uh, special forces. And so I learned that one because I thought it would be nice to have a tool in my toolkit to have self-defense skills beyond what like a, a short little workshop can teach you. And um, I also like it because similar to running, Krav Maga channels your aggression in a very um, – aggression or just emotion in general in a very controlled, productive way. Um, and I like that a lot. I still – you know, I got a couple of certificates in it. I still feel pretty competent in it, but uh, I moved on to, to other endeavors after the concussion. I, I'm very passionate about running safety and especially female running safety because of all the things that can happen out there and the stuff that we read. And uh, yesterday, actually, because of my podcast, it transpired into the first uh, female uh, running self-defense class at the local gym here for two and a half hours. And we had 18 uh, women in there and a very, very amazing female um, instructor who has 17 years of experience. And so that's, that's why that, uh, that popped out at me, the self-defense. I'm glad that you have been involved with that. Definitely being a runner, especially. Yeah. Um, one that that's awesome to hear about the self-defense stuff, um, that you've been involved in. I think it's, I think it's unfortunate the way the world works that runners and particularly female runners have to be aware of these things. But I also think that it's sort of empowering, once you get a little self-defense under your belt, how how much more liberating it can be to go off on a run and not have to worry as much. Right, look, you don't have to look over your shoulders as much. You still have to be smart and and approach it correctly. You know, don't go into places that's going to create danger, but for yourself or a dangerous environment. But to have those skills gives you a much better opportunity in case you get into an uncomfortable situation. Exactly. Taylor Swift, you still a fan? Of course. Uh, it's one of the many things my sister and I bond over. Anybody else music-wise music you're a fan of? Oh, yeah. I think definitely number one fan would be Jack Johnson. I think he always has uh, good vibes and also a good life perspective. And he's also a pretty nice family man and a big lover of the ocean. Um, Hawaii Jack guy. Jo oh, yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. uh, Jack Johnson, I think, is uh, would be celebrity crush number one, number one for me. Nice. Good. I'm glad you, you had a Hawaii person in there and didn't say Bruno Mars. Bruno Mars is from Hawaii too, but I think Jack Johnson really capsulates the, the Hawaii vibe very well. And then uh, Dexter, update on your dog. Oh, How's Dexter. Yes. Yeah, so Dexter, Dexter's a really special dog. Uh, David, my, my little brother, David always wanted a dog and you know, another bit of dry humor here, but my family and I laugh about it is that it took David having to get diagnosed with cancer for, for him to actually get the puppy. Um, but he picked out this puppy himself and named him Dexter after the TV show. And Dexter is, as far as golden doodles go and doodle mixes in general, is the most mellowest doodle ever. He's a natural athlete, extremely cute and cuddly and fluffy. Um, he has his own Instagram that my dad runs, which is uh, quite coveted by my family and my family friends. Um, mm -hmm. and he's doing great. He's a couple years old now. Um, I take him on runs with me every so often. He can always tell when either my dad or myself or, or my sister are going to go on a run. Cause, uh, he can, he can, he can like smell it off of our running shoes and our, our running attire. So he always wants to go with us. Dogs are so awesome. They're, they're in abundance out here in Maui. Everybody seems to have a dog and they're running with them. Even, 
our Wednesday night running group. I put on a Wednesday night group and we have a couple doggies that run with us too. So that's awesome. I just, I felt that that was a, that uh, Dexter is really an important part of David's life as he was going through all of his treatments and all that. So what's next for you? Oh, I figured my parents would like to know that answer as well. Um, what's next for me in the long run? So I'll be graduating from Harvard in late May and I'll be attending medical school two years from now. So I'll have to take the MCAT and apply um, during that two-year interim period. I'm also looking for jobs. So I am pretty active in the outdoors community here um, at, at Harvard, and I, I've been looking a lot into programs called wilderness therapy programs, where they help people with substance abuse, mental illness, um, conflicts at home um, through the conduit of the outdoors. And I think that sounds like something really meaningful to do and something that certainly wouldn't keep me behind the desk as much. Um, I think the backup plan to that would be working in um, a medical lab at one of the hospitals here in Boston or somewhere else in the country for the next couple of years. Um, and then I'm really excited to go to medical school eventually. I think I'm sort of like itching to go, if, if that makes sense. I think it would be yeah. a really, really cool way to, you know, to help people. I really like that immediate gratification. Um, I really like the people aspect as well. You have the whole future ahead of you. So you can make whatever decisions you want and do whatever you want to do, which is, you know, if I could ever give any advice to anybody, take every opportunity that you're passionate about and follow it because you got one life to live. And, you, you know, so far you've lived pretty doggone good life as far as, you know, the opportunities that you've had. Um, I like your quote at the end or at the beginning and the end of your TED talk. And I think we'll, we'll end it on this, but I, there is one other thing that I would like to do with your permission before I'll, I'll tell you the quote first. I don't run from things. I run for things. And that's exactly what you've done with your life, Liz. So that's, that's awesome. Right before we started our interview here, I was just kind of scanning through some items on my sheet here. And if your permission, I'd like to read the poem that you wrote for David. Uh, you have my permission. Okay, I'm going to do it right now. You wrote this in one of your blogs, and I just want to honor honor David. And of course, we, I, I honor your mom too, Susan. And I also honor your family that took you in, the Barlow family. I mean, these, these people gave you what you needed, um, the love and the support. So... Um, but David, I really want to honor here because you, you're going to be continuing to do things with Team David and all that. So the way the poem goes, this is what you put, what you wrote. This following poem is addressed to David, but meant for us all to hear. And though words can never do David justice, I hope it's worth it to lend an ear. Dear David, I miss you, bud. Sometimes it's only a loss that reminds us how much we love. And I love you, little brother. I love you like the sun. I'm so proud of how you fought, and now your fight is done. You were a blessing to this world and to the family we call our own. And I want to thank you because in you, I found a heart and home. You joined me in great arguments. And as with everything, you were too bright. I knew real soon that I'd met my match because when David argues... He's always right. You taught me to hate homework with a passion because there's no good reason to jump through hoops. 
after all, you figured out a better way to do everything. And I think everyone should do things more like you. More like you with your giggle and your bright blue green eyes. The way you love good music, good movies, good company, and good times. How you'd give us all hugs that meant the world and felt one apart because your hugs meant we just gained the love and the toughest dude with the softest heart. I've gotten to be your big sister for nearly three years and what an honor it has been. And David, I am so proud of you because even with that goddamn cancer, you still win. You win because of your goofy smile and your appreciation of the important things in life. You win because you never complained and even just a week ago you managed to ride your bike. You are strong, little brother, stronger than you ever know. And we are all so blessed to have shared this life with you. Enjoy feeling free again, David. Please give our loved ones up there some hugs too. And don't worry too much about us. We'll be all right because we always, always love you. I don't know if you ever heard that read back to you, but I thought it was very special. Thank you so much for reading that back. You're right, I haven't heard it. It makes me really happy. You wrote it and... That was definitely from the heart. Liz, I, I so much appreciate learning about you and your life. And, and I'm just so excited to hear, you know, what's going to go on in the future with you. There was so much, so much content in your life and you are just a, a wonderful person and you don't, uh, you don't run away from things. You run to things. So, um, it's a very much an honor to have talked to you. And honor to you as well. I've listened to some of your blogs, uh, or not sorry, some of your blogs, some of your podcasts, and I, I hope that this, similar to the TED Talk, can be something worthwhile for people to hear. You know, not, not for me personally, but just you know, I feel like a lot of people go through rough stuff, but hopefully they can see that running uh, can be a force for, for real good and change in life too. You know, dealing with hardship and seeing the good in life. So thank you, Jim. Oh, no worries whatsoever. Running is my passion, and I've seen so many people that have it has changed their lives to the to the better. They they got involved with running, and it's they become better persons and and done things that they never thought was possible. So, thank you, thank you, Liz. Thank you. That was a very nice conversation. I really enjoyed speaking with her. What an intelligent, strong, inspirational young lady she is. Liz has her entire future ahead of her. The life she has led so far in such a short amount of time has given her lessons and tools to handle anything that is thrown at her in her future. And I have no doubt she'll be extremely successful and maybe become a world-renowned doctor that contributes to the cure for cancer. Wouldn't that be wonderful? I am thankful for Team David and finding out how solid and wonderful St. Jude's Children's Hospital is. I honestly only form my opinion from holiday television fundraising spots and what is sent in the mail during that time of the year. I never looked into it further and never gave it a second thought. Now I know St. Jude's Hospital is the real deal and knowing that the money is going to where it is supposed to be going to, that is definitely comforting to know. Runners, if you should feel inclined to participate or donate to Team David, the links are in the show notes, as are the links to Liz's TED Talk and blog. 
You can find them all at feelgoodrunning.com. That's feelgoodrunning.com. I am so grateful to have had a chance to meet this wonderful young lady and from the bottom of my heart, wish her the very best in life. Here is a running quote to keep you inspired and feeling good. Well, runners, it's time for this episode's inspirational quote. And I'm going to dedicate this to our inspiring guest, Liz Rue. And it goes like this. Running has taught me to always push forward, especially in difficult times. Let me read that again. Running has taught me to always push forward, especially in difficult times. Sounds appropriate for Liz and for many of us. Well, that's it for this episode, runners. Please check out the show notes and links at feelgoodrunning.com. And don't forget to go to the main page of feelgoodrunning.com and leave us a voice message. Remember, this podcast is for you and about you. You're the reason we do it. Please share it with your running friends and on your social media outlets. We want the feel good running vibe to spread. Again, good luck to all those running the Boston Marathon on the 15th and everyone else who may be doing a race in your area. I hope your training has gone well and you are injury free. So with that, remember to just show up and always, always feel good about your running. That's it for this episode. Thanks for listening. Please consider sharing this podcast with your running friends and spread the feel good running vibe around you. Head over to feelgoodrunning.com to access all the links and resources mentioned on the show. Until next time, keep motivated, keep focused, and keep on running. It is sure to make you, well, feel good.